The scripture reading for this morning, uh, the Old Testament, comes from Jeremiah chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 1. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May we give our attention to it. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, Can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, and then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned, And if if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look. I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Now for the New Testament reading. It's also the sermon text today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure... In jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Thus ends the reading God's holy word. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you, and we are humbled by you and your greatness and your word. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth, 
you would cause it to accomplish all that you have set out for it to do, that it would not return empty and void, but that it would change us, Father, that it would uh, work in our hearts, that you would uh, continue to stir newness of life in us. We pray, Lord, that you would give the speaker clarity of thought and wisdom to discern and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in whose name we pray, amen. If I were to ask you to think of a strong person, what image comes to your mind? And what do you think of when you think of someone who is strong, a strong one? You think of a weightlifter, maybe a bodybuilder, or maybe you think of a movie star like Arnold Schwarzenegger or John Wayne. Maybe you're thinking of a boxer who just doesn't quit fighting, one who uh, is beaten and bloody but never gives in. Maybe you're thinking of Rocky. Uh, Maybe you went beyond the physical realm and started thinking of someone with great leadership ability, men who we look to and say, these were great men, like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, men who are very strong in a much different way. There is honestly no end to what could have come to your mind when I asked that question. But I would be shocked. It would be very surprising if your first thought was the wimpy kid from gym class. You know who I'm talking about. The kid who, uh, when he turns sideways, disappears. Uh, The kid who is the butt of every high school joke made made by the jocks and the uh, society elite. You know, the kid who would never be the best. And you know he's never going to be the best. The kid who would never make the cut, the kid who knew, everyone knew, was a loser, born inadequate for things of greatness. I mean, truly, Hollywood isn't going to call this kid up any time to star in their next action thriller. The New York Jets aren't going to be making a call and asking him to sign a million-dollar contract. I mean, this wimpy, weak kid... We'll be lucky if he's not picked last playing dodgeball. I mean, let alone if he ever gets a glimpse of true greatness. Point being, we don't associate common people. We don't associate ordinary, plain people with this idea of strength. When we think of strength, when we think of people of strength, our minds don't run to the weak ones of the world, to the underdogs. It would make no sense for us to do so. I mean, instead, we look to men and women who are autonomous, people who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps when they get uh, in a tight spot, and then they ride off into the sunset without any help from anyone ever appearing. We think of people who don't need anyone else, people who stand head and shoulders above the rest, and we say, here, here is one where... Glory can be found. Here is greatness. Here is a strong one. Attach yourself to this particular one. And if you do so, you just might stand in the shadow of greatness. We look to the strong, thinking here is where glory and power are. Even Christians do this. I mean, this isn't something that is outside of the Christian world. I don't know how many times I've read evangelism pamphlets saying, come here so-and-so, the famous football player giving his testimony. And then maybe when you see how great this one is, maybe 
you'll see that Jesus is great, just like this guy. Or the flyer will come and say, come and listen to this uh, message by such and such, one of the greatest preachers in America today. And then maybe you'll see how great Jesus is because of how great this particular man is. We associate greatness with strong ones. We as human beings are constantly seeking a great one to crown with all honor and glory. But our text this morning confronts this notion outright. Our text, God, in our text, God directs our eyes elsewhere, saying, you, you want to know where glory is found. You want to know where greatness and the glory of God will be manifested. Well, I'll tell you, it is in vessels of clay, in common, ordinary, plain Vessels in these plain and ordinary jars of clay, I will hide the greatest glory attainable. And again and again in our passage this morning, weak vessels are put on display as the one through whom God's glory shines forth. Not the elite, not the strong, but breakable, weak vessels. And for the people of God, for the weak vessel for the people who are defined by weakness, who constantly fail their God. This changes everything. This changes everything for us. For the weak person, God's treasure shines most brightly in the weakness of the world. Our text opens up describing these vessels, and these vessels first are bent but not broken. Bent, but not broken. In verses 7 through 10, Paul begins to lay out for us the state uh, the apostles and ministers of Christ Jesus find themselves in. Paul, one of the things that uh, you you pick up on if you read this letter from the beginning uh, is that Paul has been throughout this letter uh, capitalizing on an uh, uh, an us versus them kind of language. In, In other words, he's been writing as a person from one group to people from a different group, a separate group. And Paul uses this language of we in verses in the first five verses of our text, referring to his group that he is in, known as the apostles, and saying you, referring to the church of Corinth. You can see this if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, where he writes, and we are beginning to commend ourselves, or do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? And this happens in chapter 1, verse 7 again. And the same thing is going on as you come to our section in chapter 4. There's this distinction between those who minister the gospel and the church, or the us, and the you. You see this brought fully out in verse 12. But the point of all this distinguishing between us and them is not, do not take this away, it is not to give the impression that Paul is saying that he is better than the Corinthian church or wants to separate them himself from them. He's very concerned for the Corinthians. He loves this particular church very dearly. In fact, one of his goals for the church of Corinth is for them to be unified with him in his ministry and what he is doing. But rather, the point is that Paul is writing this letter the same way that you or I would write a letter, saying, you know, Aunt Polly, how are you doing? You know, 
We, me and my family, are doing just fine. I hope you are enjoying this lovely weather. And so when we come to verse 7, he's using these two categories throughout. We, referring specifically to apostles, even as he says this, even though he is saying this, and he is speaking of the apostles, it is true for the rest of the church as well. And we'll get into that uh, later this morning. But he especially, as you read this passage, has in mind the ministry of the apostles. And Paul lays out how these men who have been sent to proclaim the gospel, who have received this greatest treasure of God to proclaim unto all the world, are nothing but weak vessels. I mean, they themselves... Ministers of God, called not just by God, but by Christ Jesus himself, who called them by name to go forth and proclaim his gospel to all the world. Paul says, we're nobody. We're just weak instruments of God for him to use as he will. We are nothing more than jars of clay. As cool as it might be to uh, name a band after that title, Paul's point is to draw attention away from himself, away from the apostles, to the surpassing power of God in the gospel. It's as though he is saying, you know, the power of light is to direct its attention to something else. It is not the one that is to receive the attention. And the way Paul goes about directing our attention away from himself, it's very interesting Because it doesn't sound like Paul is drawing attention away from himself to the power of God. Especially the first time you read through this, but this is exactly what Paul is doing. He starts out here describing all the troubles the apostles have had in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says they have been afflicted. They have been brought into distress They have seen troubles. They have been pressed from every side. It's like a balloon being squeezed on all sides. They have been perplexed. They have been at a loss for what God is doing through their sufferings. They have been persecuted for the sake of the gospel, rejected by men, cast out of synagogues, even struck down for the sake of the gospel, receiving lashings and physical wounds because of the words they preach about their Savior. Paul himself was stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. But notice what Paul contrasts all these difficulties against. He says, we were afflicted, but not crushed. We were perplexed, but not in despair. We were persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. There's a song uh, I sometimes hear on the radio. I'm still not a big fan of it, uh, but the chorus gets stuck in my head. And it's this song about two lovers, one of them who isn't sure whether they should continue in this relationship or not, but the other is saying, you know, you think there's too much distance between us. You think we're drifting apart, but baby, we're not broken, just bent, and we can learn to love again. What Paul is saying is, you see, we were never abandoned. We were never left in the pits of despair. We were never crushed. We were never destroyed. 
We were only bent up and beat up, but never broken because we had this treasure of God stored within our fragile clay jars. Paul's description of himself and the apostles is like the boxer who keeps getting up and going one more round. His face is cut, his eye is swollen, but he gets up and he goes one more round anyway, continuing to fight on. That is the picture that he is presenting of the apostles and himself. But the question is why? Why would they continue to suffer in this way? I mean, why bear all these burdens voluntarily? Of what value is it to do these things? And Paul says, all these things, all our afflictions, all our afflictions that we bear in our body are for your sake. All our difficulties that we go through, all the suffering that we have suffered had been for your sake, for the church, for the people of God. And these afflictions point beyond our own strength and sufficiency. They point you to our dependence on Christ, whom we are united to by faith. Pastors and teachers, we aren't the strong men. But when we suffer, Christ's death reigns in us. And Paul moves on from this affliction that pervaded this weak vessel to show how it is that their hope is not in their bodies, it's not in these sufferings and afflictions, but it is found in the death and resurrection of Christ. Their hope is that they have been made alive and not dead. Alive, not dead. Paul, after explaining uh, the afflictions that the apostles have undergone, he goes on to verse 11 to explain why. Why this suffering and affliction that looks unattractive and unimportant and weak Why this suffering that doesn't look like it has anything to do with revealing the glory of God is so necessary. And Paul writes that his suffering, this suffering that he experienced is is for the sake of the church and in this way brings God glory. Paul says we carry these momentary afflictions in our bodies so that it brings life to you. The death of Jesus, which we are always carrying in our bodies, as demonstrated by our suffering, this death which we constantly give ourselves over to, you, to it brings life to you. Sinclair Ferguson once came to our seminary, and he made a comment that I pondered for a long time. But he said that for a congregation to live, their pastor must die. Now, what Sinclair meant is not that the church should take all her under-shepherds outside and put them on the chalking block and execute her pastors. Please don't do that. Uh, But his meaning comes right out of these verses. I mean, what he means is that as pastors are called to be like Christ, to care for his sheep, to feed their sheep, as they are always called to lay down their lives for the sheep, serving the sheep, that as they do these things for your sake, they will suffer. And in many ways, similar to their Savior for the health of, 
of the church. Pastors will take a stand on the word of God, which means that they will stand against sin. They will offend people with the gospel, knowing that this, and by doing this, truly, life and health and peace will come. They rest in that promise. They will be persecuted from both within and from without, being crushed from pressures on the outside and the inside that will be pressed from all sides. And Paul tells us that all the afflictions that they suffer are to bring life to you. This is what verse 12 says, isn't it? I mean, Paul isn't saying that the church should put their faith and hope in their fallible under-shepherds who will fail at one point or another. They will fail, who won't always be able to lay down their life for the sheep. Rather, voice, verse 13 points to the hope that the apostles themselves put their faith in. And it's the same hope that the Old Testament saints put their faith in and preached about the same hope that you are to put your faith in and your hope in. The foundation of the apostles, the faith of the Old Testament saints, based all of their hope, not on their under-shepherds, not on their leaders, but a sure, confident hope in the resurrection of the great shepherd. If you'll notice with me the words of verse 13 that read, I believed, and so I spoke. These words come right out of Psalm 116, that psalm that we read this morning. And Paul is making a connection to the theology of the psalmist at this point. And Psalm 116, truly, it's a psalm about hope. One of the lines it speaks about is that there is death, and death is certainly coming. Few things are certain in this life, but death is one of them. And it is coming. Time's winged chariot is flying away, but though death is coming for the people of God even, they will be delivered. Psalm 116, verse 8. The people of God don't hope to be delivered from physical death. I mean, our text this morning made that clear, but the people of God uh, pass through death. I mean, they will go through death. And the psalmist even goes on so far to say that the death of his saints is precious in the sight of God. Yet the psalmist speaks of the deliverance of his saints through death. The psalmist's hope is that though they will die, they will be raised again. And here in verses 13 and 14, Paul is making that hope explicit. He is telling us what this hope is that they had in. The confidence of the psalmist is in God's deliverance. And the confidence of the hope of the apostles, the confidence and hope of our faith can rest in this, that Christ Jesus, who was raised from the dead, will raise us also. Christ Jesus, the one whose death we share in, as even in our afflictions and in our sufferings that we experience in this life, that is one of the reasons the apostles and ministers and the church suffer, is because we are sharing in the death of Christ. But we will also share in his resurrection. And we will be brought into the presence of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And our hope... The hope of the church, this hope in the resurrection continues to expand and not narrow. Expand and not narrow. And as we come to 
verse 15, Paul has spoken about the affliction of the apostles. He's spoken about how the death of Christ reigns in our bodies even now as we suffer and are connected to him. This suffering brings life to the church, to the people of God. He has spoken about the hope of the resurrection, and yet he doesn't come full circle until he gets to this verse. But here, he comes back again to the same place he started. He finally gives the reason for why God uses vessels of clay to display his power. And that's really the whole point of the text here this morning. I mean, Paul says, the weakness that you think you see, the weakness that is manifested in these vessels of clay, is not weakness in the eyes of God at all. The weakness of Christians and the suffering of church ministers and even the suffering of the church herself, it manifests the glory of God through our suffering, the grace of God of the gospel will be extended to all the world. Our suffering, our weaknesses, it will all be, that is manifested in these vessels of clay. These Christians who are persecuted, who are thrown into metal containers, suffer for their faith. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ will be made known through them to the world. When a missionary dies for the sake of Christ at the end of a spear, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will be made known to the world. The world will hear Jesus preach and they will see Jesus suffer through you. Truly, this is hard to grasp. It's difficult to wrap your minds around and how we want to flee from this. We want to run away from this. But God really means it when he says, in order To bear fruit, a seed first must die and be buried in the ground. God works through the suffering of his apostles and his ministers, and yes, even through your suffering, to bring the grace of the gospel to a world filled with sinners. And as the grace of the gospel goes forth more and more and is... uh, as it goes forth more and more are brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even through the suffering of his church. And as this takes place, it tells us that thanksgiving will increase also. Mind-blowing. We will suffer and thanksgiving will increase. And all of this will bring glory to God in the utmost. You see, God will receive all the glory and honor, and praise, because the world will not put their hope in the weak vessels bringing the hope of of the message, or this message of hope. They will see clearly that it is nothing more than a broken jar, a vessel of clay, and because of this, because they see it as clearly a broken vessel of clay, they will see more clearly the treasure of the gospel of Christ Jesus himself found within them. I mean, one commentator writes that the treasures of God's gospel only shine through when the clay pot is cracked and the light of the gospel seeps out. 
people of God, this passage is meant to bring us hope. I know we've been speaking about suffering, a topic that no one enjoys, but there is hope here. I mean, for while we are weak vessels, easily broken, easily cracked and chipped, while we have nothing much to offer our God, Christ takes our earthen vessels and places his treasure of grace and mercy found in Christ Jesus alone within them. And when we falter and fail, and when we just aren't good enough to serve the King of kings, when we suffer all kinds of wrongs, remember and believe that God is using your weakness, our weaknesses, to show forth his strength, to bring forth his utmost glory. And he is filling up what is lacking in our sufferings. And if we remember and believe that God uses suffering and weaknesses to make his glory known more fully, truly, and it changes how we deal with suffering when it comes into our lives, don't we? I mean, we no longer need to flee from it. We no longer need to flee from suffering as though it is a bad thing, but we are free to embrace it. And I know that sounds crazy. But if we know that God has promised that in our sufferings, in our weakness, he will receive glory, then it makes all the difference for us when suffering comes. And we can accept and even embrace those sufferings, for by so doing, we embrace Christ himself, the master who was not above suffering. May we cling to the promises that God uses the weak things of the world to scorn the strong. May we embrace the suffering God brings into our life so that we may bear witness to the hope that lies within us. But may we remember that though we are weak, we have the greatest treasure within us. Christ Jesus, the righteous Lamb of God, who is our only hope. He has died, he has risen, and he will come again. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, your ways are unsearchable. Who can understand the depth of the wisdom, of the riches, and the mercy of God? Who can comprehend what you are doing. And yet, Lord, we praise you and magnify your name for what you are doing, for the mercy that you are displaying in our weaknesses, in our failings. Your power and your gospel are being made known through all the earth. We thank you, our God, for Christ Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. We pray, Father, that you would help us to endure the suffering that come into our lives. Help us to understand that we are yoking ourselves to Jesus and that as we yoke ourselves to his death and his sufferings, we also will find newness of life there. For he has risen again and he will raise us from the dead also. Father, we praise and magnify your name for you alone are good. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.